0: This week on the Eldritch Lorca. <laughs> I
1: think the thing that was most boomer about that, James, was you saying social media is collapsing. <laughs> I
0: already know is that I'm a horrible, horrible human being. It's my baby. Apparently I'm He's just going to what? We know you're going to go on this epic quest to Icewind Dale. Here are some Twingas. uh, Play with them. Oh, we've played with the Twingas. Now we're (laughs) second level. Yay.
1: My favorite one was the Warlock, where they were still in contact with the Warlock ex's (laughs) patron, as if it was like their ex's mom or
0: something. Multiclassing during AD&D was necessary. This 5e machine is not necessarily built to do that. We
2: might be kind of entering a period where if you want to start making RPGs, thinking of it as a job. It might be a mistake.
3: I can I can add some actual boomer ass <laughs> advice
1: for that. Horse Guy. I don't remember the names.
2: I like Horse Guy. Horse Guy works. All that and more
0: right now. Hello and welcome to the Eldritch Lorecast. I am your host this week because Ben is getting a much needed break. So I'm Sean Merwin, and I am here with two of the usual suspects two of the most intelligent and eloquent people in the role-playing game industry, Dale Kingsmill and James Hake, And I'm also here with a very unusual suspect, one amazing Scott Fitzgerald Gray. We are going to start with our opening question, which is, what is one thing about you as a gamer that people who don't know you very well would be surprised to hear?
1: I've thought about this. I think the answer is that I've never played a bard
0: do you sing as other classes
1: I sing just all the time generally as annoying as I can possibly be
0: so you're so you're kind of multi-classing bard no matter what uh what class you play
1: none of the benefits all mm-hmm. of the drawbacks
0: uh James what what is the one thing about you that people might be surprised to know oh, they'd be surprised to know how stressed out I get before
2: dming a game like I I have a game that I'm running in two hours after the lore cast and it's like it's weighing on my mind and and the The past couple of times we haven't played has been because I have gotten to the point of being ready to play and like an hour before the game, I like have a panic attack and I'm like, "Ah, I cannot run this game right now. There's too much to get back to this. It's the first game back in forever. It needs to be really good. And I am feeling all of those butterflies right now, which means it's going to be a great lore cast. Do
0: you want us to just do a double lore cast, so we're actually recording right up to start time, and then you won't have time to think about what what you're going to be doing during the game.
1: It's the perfect solution.
0: Honestly, you know I've done all my prep. <laughs> that would be great,
2: actually. Uh, Dante, okay. can we can we just get some confirmation on this? Can can we just uh, make this happen, please,
0: D- for me, Scott? What is your answer to this question?
3: Uh, Interestingly, I can also answer the same as Dale and James. I have never played a bard, uh, though I once played an orc barbarian who played bagpipes really badly. That's (laughs) about as close as I've come. Uh, And I also, much like James, much like many people, I think, just go into a state of full-blown panic mode and stress every time I'm uh, getting ready to run a game. Uh, I don't think there's anything to do to avoid that, really. I think the one thing I would say that kind of crosses over not so much just into the gaming as the work that I do in gaming is a lot of people, when I meet them, when I talk to them, they assume that I probably have like an encyclopedic knowledge of 5e and D&D, and Mm -hmm. I absolutely don't. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that I don't is that not having that knowledge, I think, makes me actually better at the job that i do working on D, because having the understanding or having having the frame of mind that everything i think is wrong is a really useful thing to have when you're trying to make everything right when you're working mm-hmm. on other people's stuff
0: so mm-hmm.
3: like right now like if you asked me to name like all of the subclasses that are in the player's handbook i i have a zero percent chance of getting them all
0: you, you missed the the episode where ben grilled us on the schools of magic for spells I can do and that. I was, I was all so for hard. everything. Uh, James, I think, got uh, m- the most right. Uh, Dale was, Dale was there. You know, uh, for some of them, I was, I had no clue who was going on. My, my big horrible secret, which people who have actually played with me as a player uh, already know, is that I'm a horrible, horrible human being. Uh, <laughs> and and I know better, but I do it anyway and so there is no topic that doesn't get joked about uh i will go off the rails completely uh as as long as i know that the players are in the dm are going to be okay with it there is no pun that's bad enough not to do uh there is no sidetrack uh table talk funny aside that throws off the game for 20 minutes that i won't uh, go after so if you, if I ever sit down as a player at your table, whiskey whiskey works. That if I get enough of it, I get a little drowsy. So I would strongly suggest that.
1: I don't think it's surprising to anyone, but I will confess this every opportunity I get. I'm bad at maths. Mm-hmm. I will take my time counting the dice. It you're just gonna have to get used to it.
0: <laughs> One of the joys of fifth edition was with fourth edition, uh, numbers would get so high that the fingers would you would. <laughs> I have to add twelve. Oh no! Uh, so you know the—that's the one thing about bonded accuracy that—that uh, that was <laughs> nice. Was you—you you only have to count you know, maybe eight at the oh, highest. Yeah. Also,
1: way fewer negative modifiers, mm-hmm. which is great because subtraction is harder.
0: It's almost like addition in reverse, like some kind of reverse math. <laughs> it's Madness. All right. Well, let's get to just that wee bit of news. And the first bit of news is: Hey, Cobalt Press, good job! Their Kickstarter. Tales of the Valiant ended just a couple of days ago to, get this, over 10,000 backers and 1.151914, $1,151,914 that fans and gamers spent to bring this game to life. It's
1: a lot of dollars.
0: So Wolfgang Bauer, Celeste Conowich, Meghan Markle, the whole team there, we are behind you 100%. Uh, Ghostfire looks forward to providing the things that we said we would provide for the Kickstarter, and we can't wait to see the final product come out. I'm just really proud of how this turned out. It's, I mean, to
2: break a million, I, I think we can still count on two hands how many RPG Kickstarters have done that in the history of time. And you know i'll i'll be the first to say i have often been a little hard on tales of the valiant here on this podcast for you know it's many similarities to 5e but that's that's just because i've already got 5e and these this game is moving forward in a direction that is supporting a type of play that very obviously a lot of people really want they want a fresh take on 5e and they don't have uh, faith in wizards to provide it, or or they want you know a second opinion on how it can be done, and so that's that's thrilling. You know, these are books that I will pick up no matter what, whether or not I want to play this game, because from a purely you know curious standpoint, I'm thrilled to see what's going on in there.
3: Uh, I agree with James absolutely. The the one thing I mean, just Cobalt Press did has done two amazing things in the last year, six months, whatever it is, being the first company to kind of announce uh, in the midst of the OGL debacle that they were going to be doing something, they were going to be charting their own path, took a huge amount of, a huge amount of, um, of, of bravery. And then to put the game up this quick, you know, to, to, when, when they talked about having, that they've been working on this game for a long time, I think there were a lot of people who were like, yeah, maybe and maybe not. This, is, you know, this seems very opportunistic with the OGL thing. And clearly Cobalt Press has been working on this game for a long time. You know, it's great to see them kind of put the na- put those naysayers down. The thing that impresses me most about the Kickstarter, even more so than the the amount of money that they raised, which is you know extremely impressive, the number of backers is really cool. You know, like a Kickstarter that does a lot of money with a relatively small number of backers paying. A large, you know, uh, uh, backing at kind of at at, at kind of uh, high cost levels. It's really cool to see that. You know, it's great that people are spending money on games. It's great that people, you know, c- can 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 continue to make games using crowdfunding. But the difference between like a like a like a full game doing a relatively small number of people and a ten thousand people—that's not just people interested in a game. That's a community, right? Those are people who are going to be playing this game, who are going to be passionate about this game. It gives Cobalt Press. You know, um, license to say we're going to keep making stuff for this game because we have that audience starting off right, right from the start. These people are with us, and that's really, really cool to see.
2: Only further cool to see because honestly, most of the people backing this Kickstarter are probably game masters, right? Yeah. So if we're looking at purely how many people are going to be playing Tales of the Valiant, uh, you know, take that number, multiply it by three or four or five. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, a number of 10,000, which is respectable, but pales in comparison to the monolithic Titan that is Dungeons and Dragons, enormous player base. And all of a sudden you're, you're looking at a much more respectable piece of the pie right there. And that's really cool. Yeah, for sure. Apparently I'm, (laughs) (laughs) he's just gonna, what? what? They got him.
1: (laughs) They got him before he could finish. Sean, our fearless leader.
2: The Shadow Fae have got him by the ankles. I gotta pull up the
1: the run sheet. I have no idea where we're going from here. Dale, you're the host now. I've got got,
3: got a copy in front of me, if anybody.
1: We're gonna make the guest host now. This is terrible.
3: Ben is never going to leave again. He's gonna basically live in the office.
1: The ethereal expense setting guide, available on Kickstarter now.
2: <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> it's it's my baby. My precious pirates of the Ethereal Expanse. It's for 5e. It's high magic. It's swashbuckling. It's got ship combat rules, which Spelljammer didn't have. I know you want those ship combat rules. It's wonderful. Oh, Look yeah. at our live play from PAX Australia last year where we get very piratical about it all with uh, Ben and Dale and me and uh, and Luna Leboffin And oh god I'm gonna look like a jerk Who was our last cast member
1: It's two popular oh, DD was names it, Was it Matty P? It's a Matthew and a Perkins Yes it Maddie is Matty P
2: God, we're getting the, the backstage text from Ben saying, do I need to save you guys? <laughs> no, Ben Byrne, we're capable no, adults. Ben, we've
1: got this, we've got this. <laughs> I mean, Sean might have been got by a sniper, but apart from that, we can. this train will keep going.
2: <laughs> no. I feel like ah. I've spent like, you know, 15 minutes on the last two episodes uh, hyping up pirates, tooting my own horn. And I, I'm starting to feel like a broken record. Uh, so let me just say this. I'm not blowing smoke when I say this uh, piratical and swashbuckling fantasy setting is exactly what you need for your 5e game. It is.
0: I couldn't agree more with whatever you just said. <laughs> now, let us get, before I disappear again, to our questions. <laughs> and our first question comes from Joe. Joe asks, to what degree do you think 5e has symmetry in its design? And to what degree... Is symmetry important in game design? Some games re- rely heavily on symmetry. For example, lasers and feelings where there are two stats and they're mirrored. People often divide five E's ability scores into three physical and three mental and then categorize them as physical power for strength and mental power for intelligence, dexterity being physical speed, intelligence, mental speed, etc., or charisma being mental speed. Uh, these categorizations don't hold true for Joe, and we could argue around about where stats should be placed, which makes Joe think that symmetry was probably not a high priority during game design.
3: It's a really cool question, and I think underlying my answer is the thinking about the, the way that uh, Joe broke it down, talking about you know strength is physical power, intelligence is mental power, dexterity is physical speed, charisma is mental speed, I would use totally different categories for the mental stats as I think a lot of people would, because when you think about them, you can parse them in so many different ways, right? Uh, and I think that underlies the fact, along with the, with the history of the game, that I, I, I honestly don't think symmetry was ever a big priority in D&D when you look at the foundational aspects of it. I think there's been a certain amount of symmetry that's been added onto to it since then. I think uh, each successive edition of the game tries to make things a little bit clearer, tries to make things a little bit more balanced, and I think symmetry is sort of part of that process. But I mean the 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 one thing to remember is that in in original D&D there were only 3 ability scores that mattered and that was strength intelligence and wisdom because no other character classes had anything to do with the other with the other scores right the thief didn't come in until partway through uh, original D&D and then made its way into the first edition of advanced dungeons and dragons using dexterity but dexterity effectively in the in the original game unless you were a fighter was effectively a dump stat right because you really couldn't make much use out of it it had to be so high to give a bonus to your AC that if you were, if you were playing a wizard or a cleric, you wouldn't, you wouldn't bother, right? There'd be no point to it. Um, even in like third edition, one of the things that I, I recall about third edition is that um, there were rules in there for making your own uh, ancestors or races as they were called in that edition. And they very, very specifically called out the idea that charisma is worth less than any other ability score and that strength is worth more. There were specific, explicit instructions saying if you want to give an ancestry a plus one bonus to strength, right, then you have to give at least a plus, uh, at least a minus two penalty to some, to, to, to like, uh, intelligence and charisma, or like a minus two to charisma is worth a plus one to dexterity and that sort of thing. So even at that point in time, it was very clear that, that the, there was an imbalance even in the, the foundational mechanics of the game. And I think that's always been a part of the game, and I suspect it always will be. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I think one of the clearest symmetries that we can see in the design of modern d certainly from 3rd edition onward, is uh, classes and levels. Every class has 20 levels worth of content in it. All the spellcasting classes has 9 levels worth of spells in them. Speaking of adding symmetry to a game which originally did not possess it, I mean, we look back at the way classes and XP and levels worked back in The old, old days where elf and dwarf were classes. Uh, Now, I didn't play back when that was happening, so I only have a sort of historical knowledge of it. But, like, there were classes with 12 levels in them, or something like that. You know, you could only take so many levels of uh, one class if you were this race, or uh, once you reached a certain point, you had to follow a different path. We can debate back and forth about whether or not that asymmetrical design is good or not. I think we had a whole conversation about asymmetrical design just a week or two ago. That might be where this question is coming from. Um, but when it comes to the foundational mechanics of the game, uh, it's clear that rather than being a hodgepodge of different rules published in different pamphlets and zines and all kinds of uh uh, agglutinated together by fans and creators into something, you know, everything they like. Let's just shove it in. Uh, there's been more and more intent in trying to make an intentionally designed game in third and then fourth and now fifth edition.
3: One thing to add to what James was saying, talking about uh, spells going to ninth level as being a nicely symmetrical thing. AD&D spells didn't weren't symmetrical because in AD&D, cleric spells only went to seventh level. Only Mm -hmm. magic users/slash wizards got to go to nine. So that's a really good example of something that the third edition design team looked at and said, This doesn't seem to make any sense to us. This should be symmetrical. And then
2: maybe. And if you looked at it now, you'd be like, Why did they ever do it that way in the first Mm -hmm. place? Oh, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: I I feel like, as well, if you look at the trajectory of where 5E reimagined, 5.5E, 6C uh dnd uh, one dnd whatever we're calling it when you look at the trajectory we're headed in we're heading in the direction of even more symmetry i didn't realize how much i liked the little bits of of asymmetry in 5e's game design until it started being stripped away um <laughs> i'm on the verge of a rant no um but you know you you look at the the new class progressions everyone's getting their, their stuff at the same levels. You know what I mean? Like, like previous now everyone's had what ability score improvement or feat at the same level. Uh, but otherwise, you know, your subclass gets stronger at different levels. If you're a rogue or if you're a barbarian or if you're a, a sorcerer, um, and there's kind of a, a wild element of that sometimes, you know, you get these huge gaps between subclass improvements for the sorcerer. You get two cool things really early on, and then you have to wait, until you're like 16th level or something like that, um, versus, you know, one of the classes that has a more, a more steady and regular thing, uh, versus classes that don't get many subclass improvements at all, like the wizard, because you are expected to get all these bonuses through the spells. So you just don't get as much that asymmetry. Um, I'm I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, but it is something that now that we are seeing subclass improvements being regulated to be the same level and, and a few other things that, that are becoming a little bit more symmetrical across classes, I do kind of miss it, the flavor that comes with it. I feel like it does tell you something about one class over another. Like The fact that a sorcerer gets a first level subclass ability tells you something about sorcerers versus wizards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a, there's a lot of fun to be had in the little asymmetrical gaps.
2: Dale, you weren't here the other week when we were talking about the the quest for third level or the quest for the subclass. And I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on it, actually, because, you know, in fifth edition, right, all these subclasses are sort of first or second or third level. And now in 1D&D, they all happen at third. Uh, would you consider it a core part of the game, like acquiring your subclass?
1: I mean, I guess the the big thing for me that stands out that worries me about that is that we already see in officially published adventures that they'll say, this is an adventure from levels one to seven or something like that. But it's not, it's not. It's a bunch of nothing for three levels worth. They basically say, I don't know, you're in the city, do stuff until you've gained three levels. You know what I mean? Everyone, Dragon Heist does this, all of them are doing this. And it's my biggest pet peeve when it comes to these adventures because they just say, I don't know, start somewhere irrelevant and do a bunch of random crap for a while and then we'll get around to adventuring. Um, and it, it really, really bugs me. So I can only imagine that once every subclass is gained at third level, that that's just going to be extra cemented. Um, but I don't know. I I would love to just start with a subclass, <laughs> but I feel like that's something I'm saying now that if I think about it for like an hour, I might change my mind.
0: I, I feel like there's a there's a game out there that wants us to start with a subclass and start with all of these powers. And then there's a game out there that wants us to start as dirt farmers who have a pick or a shovel and that we have to fight our way to gain those powers and D is trying to split the difference the current version of D is trying to split the difference between those two we've seen that in in basic D and 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 dnd then we saw fourth edition or even third edition where you start as as a superhero uh and and go from there and this takes us back fifth edition takes us back to that spot where we're sort of in between the two again and I'd love to see it move one way or the other, but not try to do both because then we do get what Dale mentions, which is sort of, all right, we know you're going to go on this epic quest to Icewind Dale, but your first level adventure is going to be here are some Twingas. Uh, Play with them. Oh, we've played with the Twingas. Now we're (laughs) second level. Yay. Uh, (laughs) And and that's... First first level fishing. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, first level fishing
2: game, great. Sean, you've made one of, I would say, probably the the most popular, most played low level adventures for 5e in the the starter uh, adventures for the Tyranny of Dragons series of AL, Mm -hmm. And a similar one for the, uh, the Storm King Thunder series as well, where there's like five little one hour adventures that will all be suited for first level characters. And they're all kind of centered around a hub. When when it comes to leading into a story with first level content, do you think that uh, that's the way to do it?
0: I think that is a way to do it because, because mm. that was the focus of this. This was you're at a convention and you're learning how to play D&D or you're at a convention and we want to introduce you to Flan. So this is the best way to do that. For the uh, Storm King Thunder, it was we want to introduce this idea of giants versus dragons so this is you know the best way to do that so i think it i think i like short adventures as intro adventures and given what 5e is i do like play for 2 hours gain a level but i also want it to be mm. meaningful to the story rather than just you do go do these two two small things, and boom, there you are, second level.
1: Right. So, Mm -hmm.
0: I I want the story, the type of story that's being told to inform the way the game moves characters from their intro into their power.
2: Is it even possible, then, to have these low-level adventures take you from dirt farmers to demigods by the end in a way that feels natural?
1: Yeah, because if we're talking as well about the idea of like gaining your subclass... That's a cool idea, and I'm sure that if Ben was here, he would have stories about it. I'm sure that he's mentioned having run it this way. But, you know, like having someone who's playing a paladin who is going from, I'm a, pal- I, I'm a dirt farmer who's just become a paladin and I'm working towards mm-hmm. my oath. If if there was a way to make that really work, I think it would look really cool and it would create this great, sweeping, overarching story. But it's such a tricky thing to um to manage in a lot of ways just because – backgrounds Mm. exist. And as soon as you have backgrounds that you were encouraging the players to take, they start thinking about their their character's backstory and they start thinking, Mm. oh, yes, well, my parents were murdered by this dragon and I swore an oath and there it is. They've already sworn their oath. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like the backgrounds are great in so many ways, but also create this complication.
0: One of the things that I love hearing from players is I played your adventure and I had an idea for my character arc and playing your adventure, I changed it. Because the story gripped me oh. so much, that's what I wanted to do then. And I want that sort of thing to happen because story, because we've come together to tell that story. And it's it sort of happened in the past with zero-level adventures or zero-level characters that they've done, tried to do over the years. There was a, an old adventure called Treasure Hunt set in the moonshine isles where you are zero level characters. Your ship has been battered by the storm. And now you're on this Island and you sort of gain the little bits that you would get at first level as you adventure. So you can decide, Oh, I'm the character that ran ahead to fight something more than likely than not. You're going to be the fighter. So here, take this ability. I'm the one who was sneaking around behind everyone. Okay. You here's this ability. You're going to play the rogue. And you, I think you can make a game that does that. I don't know if D D can make a game that that does that because it has to reach that wider audience.
3: Yeah, I think that's really, I mean, what 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 Sean just said is that is the challenge for 5e going forward, is that there's simply too many different ways right now to play the game. And that didn't used to be the case. When you were playing AD&D, there was one way to play the game. And that was you worked with this very simple rule set and you made everything else mm-hmm. up. Right when people talk about AD&D as as, as being a role playing game what they actually meant was for everything that the rules didn't cover you just role played through mm-hmm. it right? it was that a was game nature- making yeah. game exactly <laughs> yeah you know and there was a, and there was a there was a kind of wonder to that but obviously you know the audience for that is is it, the audience for the game has changed significantly so you're dealing now with people who want when they're building a character they want to embrace that idea of what story am i telling mm-hmm. right they love working out the fine details of that, of their backstory and their history and where they came from and where they're going to. And then the thrill of, as Sean said, having that change in the course of a game because something happens to your character that you couldn't have possibly predicted. And there are other people who simply want to get a set of mechanical statistics in front of them, write some numbers down, and then start playing. And trying to hew the line between those two extremes in terms of what players want is a huge challenge.
0: Well, I hope that answers the question at least a bit in terms of symmetry and patterns and things flowing nicely. Uh, the next question I, I wanted to get to was sort of a bigger question, and I don't—we've talked about it a bit, but we haven't talked about it in a while—at least not since I've been here. So, let's ask this: the current state of the five E 2 E playtest, uh, and the ten-year future for D and D.
1: I have no idea where we're gonna be in 10 years, is the wild thing. I feel like um I would have expected I I like in the broad scheme of things, I am new to Dungeons and Dragons, right? And so this will be basically my first edition change that I'm I'm living through. And it's so interesting to see what an iterative process it is. That surprises me because mm-hmm. Thank you. Accept <laughs> this blessing. Um, but it's it's so surprising because I would have expected a lot of it to be behind closed doors. I would have expected a lot of it to be, we're going to work on this for ages with closed play testing and figure a bunch of stuff out and then we'll give it to you and then we'll make more changes. But so much of it is happening and then changing, happening and then changing, happening and then changing. Um, so <laughs> it's I, it feels like there are going to be as many different looks of D&D, feels of D&D, approaches to D&D in terms of design as we get people working on it and you know, moving through Wizards of the Coast. And, and you know, every new person who comes to that design team is going to have their own ideas that are going to be changed by the people who are around them. And I, it just feels impossible to predict from my perspective. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I think it's absolutely impossible. And I think the 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 most important aspect of that is the people making the game, I don't think, have any ability to predict what the landscape's going to look like in 10 years. And I think part of the reason for that is that 5e taught us that, mm-hmm. right? I think there were, there were some expectations for 5e when it first came out, right? The expectations were, we want this to be a game that feels more universal, right? Where you can play different styles of play. Uh, you're not going to get locked into a heavy tactical game like 4E ultimately was. Um, they wanted to make some, some overtures to people from previous editions, people playing AD&D, first and second edition, who were into the more sort of the story-driven uh, setups of their games. Right? They wanted to make that style of play possible. But they, there, there's also a huge amount of crunch in 5E for people who want to play a, a tactical game. But I think the success of the game caught everyone by surprise. I think mm-hmm. if you had asked anybody at the design team, and Sean, I think, has, has has spoken about talking to to folks on the design team, who said this is probably going to be the last edition of D and D. This will be the one and people will play it, and you know it'll find an audience, and that'll be great, You're right? But nobody certainly said we will have exponential growth of this game for the next ten years. No one would have predicted we are going to have X million people playing this game, or you know, subscribing to D and D Beyond and all that. That so that. That X factor is the big question right now is what, what's going to take the place of that going forward, right? Um, D&D Beyond is probably, you know, like uh, looking back at 5e, I don't think anybody could have predicted the effect that, that having D&D Beyond as a platform for the game would have created. So you can look at D&D Beyond now and you can say, okay, we can predict what D&D Beyond is going to look like over the next 10 years. But there's probably going to be something other than D and Beyond, which is going to be the 2024 editions D and D Beyond, mm-hmm. in terms of shaking things up, in terms of making the game more accessible, of changing the way people play the game, the way they interact with it.
2: And Wizards would love for that to be the virtual tabletop. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah, but you know, there's there's it's 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 a tough question because I mean, the the virtual tabletop again, kind of lends itself to one particular style of play, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and whether you know whether whether that. Whether people view that as something that try, that's trying to lock them into a particular approach, or whether it's seen as something that they can build on, whether it is ultimately something they can build on because it's because it's open enough and it runs on you know a wide range of hardware, you know. But and, and those are all those are all questions that you know certainly I, I don't think anybody has any answers to right now.
2: I'm just thinking back to the D and D next playtest because this is I I think this is my second edition change. I play third edition. But I was playing 3rd edition while 4th edition was ending, basically. Um, and so when, when I burned out of 3rd, I kind of, you know, six months passed and I rolled right into the D&D Next playtest and I got very, very excited and stuff like that. And so there are huge similarities in approach to both the d and Next playtest and the one D&D playtest we're seeing now 10 years apart from one another. The main difference that simply can't be accounted for, though, is that D and D is enormous now, whereas D and D was basically a shriveled husk when D and D next was happening. Fourth edition had a really rough go of it, and you know there hadn't been D and D releases other than sort of multi edition releases uh, for D and D encounters. I don't know, and like a, a year, maybe even two years between the playtest release and fourth edition. Um, so. And, and, and all that to say, even then, people were joking about how many different ways of playing D&D there were such that no good consensus could ever possibly be reached by the D&D next playtest. There's a Penny Arcade webcomic that I reference every fourth episode of this podcast, I feel, <laughs> while we're in playtest mode. Um, and so th- the task is just even more enormous now. And... Ultimately, what that means is when D&D Next did that, they took a lot of opinions from a wide variety of sources, people who loved AD&D, classic editions, people who loved the customizability of third edition. There's even a little bit of fourth edition in there. Uh, And made a game that feels like a compromise, a good compromise, and a really accessible compromise. Um, And I'm very curious now because my gut tells me that ultimately what the fifth edition refresh will be is it will be the devs sticking to their guns and they want to ask for public opinion because they don't want to do something that's a disaster but they're they're not going to design by committee and i really think that's the best possible option they could take because like I trust folks like Perkins and uh, Jeremy Crawford and and Dan Dillon and all those smart people over there, Wizards of the Coast, because they they can make a pretty good game, make a pretty damn good game, um, and I hope that that's the way it goes.
1: We're seeing a, a new sort of era in tabletop RPGs where, you know, I suppose the transition from from uh, I guess three point five to four and probably more likely four to five. There's this pressure coming from the existence of and, and success of Pathfinder. And we're now seeing all these other games, right? We've got the MCDM game that's going to be coming out at some point. We've got the critical role game that's going to be coming out at some point. We've just had a very successful Kickstarter for Tales of the Valiant. And if, if this space only gets you know, more and more uh, groups publishing cool stuff, particularly in the genre of fantasy, it will be interesting to see over the next decade or so how that impacts the, um, the design direction mm. of, of Wizards of the Coast.
3: Looking beyond kind of what the game is going to be in terms of its, its focus and its philosophy, one of the things which is going to be the biggest challenge for Wizards is the success of fifth edition is something that they have to live up to. Right. 5e success was a lightning in the bottle thing, which means by definition, it cannot be replicated. Right. And I think we're looking at a reality where it's entirely possible that the 2024 5e is a monumentally successful game. Everybody loves the rule set. Everybody's playing it. You know, D and D beyond subscriptions go way up, but it's not as successful as 5e has been from 2014 to 2023. And by that metric, I don't know what that means in terms, of, in terms of the people, not the people at Wizards, the amazing designers who are there, but the people who are above mm-hmm. them, who are in charge of making Hasbro shareholders really happy.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't want to be them. I feel like such a
2: hipster nerd saying stuff like this, but like when fifth edition came out, the design team, the D&D team in its totality was something like 15 people. Across all departments, across writing and graphic design and publishing and marketing, like all fifteen people were running D and D as a brand, and I think it's it's got to be something like between five and ten times that number now. Um, but I kind of liked it when Hasbro didn't really care very much about D and D; they could just kind of roll along. Uh, there's, there's this beautiful sweet spot in 2017 or something when Tomb of Annihilation and Storm King's Thunder and Dragon Heist were all happening, where it wasn't enormous, but it wasn't on life support either. And I, I, I have come to terms with it, but I still wish that there were a little bit that it, that was the level D&D continued at Yeah, if you,
0: if you want to hear my prediction, let me preface it with this. About 15 years ago, I wrote a big blog about how RPGs were basically dead. And they weren't going to get any better. <laughs> there would be small slivers of the population that played them, but nobody cared about role playing games anymore. They were it's a very niche market, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That was my bold prediction, and of course, chooom, off we go, skyrocketing sales, <laughs> more, yeah, you know, more than ever. So I'm not going to predict a darn thing, but I will bring up a, one more question at least, and let's go to this question uh, to Matthew who asks about multiclassing with D and D revising its rules. I was wondering how you feel about some of the multiclassing rules and limitations in five E should multiclassing remain optional in games like feats used to be, or should it be a core option like feats are going to be, or that we have hinted they're going to be. I might add, um, uh, Matthew talks about the ability score requirements being sort of odd because you don't need ability score requirements to take the original class, but you need them to multi-class. Uh, also, proficiencies seem a little wonky to to math, Matthew, um, and he says that level dipping, taking just one or two levels of a multi-class, are still a thing like they were in third edition, and they've tried to push abilities to levels two and three to keep people from doing that. But many classes spike early with their with their most uh, useful powers. So he wants to know what we think about that. And do we have any personal stories about multi-classing, goofy characters, broken characters, or truly unique characters?
1: Just the other day, I, um, my friend Omar was um, going to be doing a charity game and they were told it was level 20. And so we sat down and worked together to create this character who, it was, it was something like 13 levels of rogue and then every other level was a different class, multi-class. And the concept of it was, uh, was that they had a lot of past relationships and all of their exes, they'd just picked up stuff from them. So like my favorite one was the warlock where they were still in contact with the warlock exes <laughs> patron. As if it was like <laughs> the, their ex's mom or something. Share, share, that was very, very Shared custody
3: of the patron. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah.
0: yeah in, in third edition, <laughs> if you multi-classed in a way that was a little out of balance, speaking of symmetry, if there was a way that was out of balance, you took a penalty to the experience points you received. And so for most people, that was a horrible thing because everyone else was receiving 100% of the experience, but you who multi-classed incorrectly- we're only receiving 90% or 80%. In organized play, though, people were rushing to get to the highest levels to be the first to reach levels 15 and 16 and 17. And suddenly they found out when they reach a certain level, there are no longer any adventures for them to play. So one, br- one <laughs> brilliant uh, young mind, young game designer, who now works as a game designer for Wizards of the Coast, I might add, came up with a way to create a multi-class character that received a 100% experience point penalty. (laughs) So he would never level because he took uh, just enough of all of the different classes and he could play at, I think it was like 12th (laughs) or 13th level. He could just play his character. He would never receive any experience. He would still get magic and gold and all the other rewards, but he could just play forever. Uh, so that—that's my memory of yes, yeah, perfect, perfect symmetry. Imagine bad.
2: having to hack your tabletop game to be able to keep playing forever. So multi-classing mm-hmm. as a as an optimization tool, I think is really cool. Uh, I don't I don't use it that way. I don't care enough about. Power gaming and optimization to do that. But it's obvious to me that people get a lot of fun out of it. I, I I've played games where I love optimizing builds. D&D isn't one of them, but like the thrill you can get in like when I was in high school playing League of Legends, you know, uh to create the perfect character build uh with all of your talents, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, was was uh intoxicating. Um for me, multiclassing in D&D is something that uh, really should reflect the adventures that you've been on. Oh, you just went through the woods and you fought a vampire. What did you do in that adventure? Oh, you were the one who were, uh, who were tracking their minions through the dark wood. You had to fashion an improvised way of taking down evil spirits. Well, it seems like a level of ranger would be perfect for what you just kind of experienced in that adventure. They're experience points, after all, so might as well spend them where the experience happened. Um, but. You know, if you've got a group with that person in it and a group with the optimizer who's you know building a coffee lock in there on the other side, all of a sudden your gaming group is you know it's a disaster. Five is pretty well regulated to have a fairly even power curve across all classes. It's not perfect, but like if you're playing single class, you're generally going to have a nice, relatively well balanced time. But if you start d- doing these wildly different play philosophies, it all falls apart. um so, I don't know. The answer here, I think, is find people whose playstyles match as it tends to be. But like, I love multiclassing in theory, yeah. <laughs> often not so much in practice.
3: I was going to say much the same thing as James uh, just said. I think there's, for, for me, I feel like there's two broad reasons why someone wants to multiclass. One is you want to build a hyper-optimized character mechanically. You want all the advantages none of the disadvantages. Um, but the other reason, which I think is the more interesting reason, is because you want to tell a cool story. Mm-hmm. Because there's something about your character's progression, the things that they learn, the things that they encounter, the things that they do during their career that lends itself to saying, I, the path that I was on, I'm moving off that path now. Something has happened and I'm going in a different direction. Right? I think um, some of the stuff that, that, that Matthew in his email asked about, I think, actually feed into that story side of it. Right? Like The idea of why a, why a fighter wizard uh, can use heavy armor, but a wizard fighter can't. The reason for that, I think, or at least this is how I would, I would you know, phrase it if it was my character or if I was running that game is that your fighter has spent, you know, the first, their, their entire life learning martial stuff, you know, being involved in that, in that world. That's, that's given them a certain baseline in terms of the things that they're experienced with. Your wizard who suddenly decides to become a fighter can't reproduce that in a month or a week or, you know, for most 5e games, 15 minutes, because that's how long it takes you to level up, mm-hmm. right? You know, so that, that, that to me feeds the idea that multiclassing as, as storytelling is a kind of a cool option. Um, and it seems like multiclassing on some level is, I, I won't say focused more on story in, in 5e, but certainly that's the, that's the, I think, the easiest approach to make. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're just multiclassing just to, just to min-max, as James said, you know, that's, it's great that you can do that. That aspect of it doesn't interest me nearly as
1: much. As a design element, I find it so fun. I really loved um, the the War Machine tabletop RPG, which was one of the earliest games I looked at, had a thing where whenever you built a character at first level, you choose two different classes and it was designed to um, to sort of zip it together mm. that way, um, which is something that I totally ripped off when I was doing my uh, my GameoWriMo uh, Wild West game that I wrote in a month. It was, you know, it, everything was sort of designed so that it would be like, I am a combat medic. So I chose soldier and doctor, or, um, I am literally a cowboy. So I chose, you know, horse guy. I don't remember the names. I like I horse don't remember guy. the names for my own game. Horse this is, this is my oh, okay. true confession, Sean. <laughs> uh, yeah. Horse guy is the perfect uh, class name. Uh, but I I believe as well someone in chat might know the name of it. But there's there's a way that people have kind of hacked Five E as well, uh, and I'm sure other games or other editions where you do play that way. You choose two classes at first level, and you just get all the benefits gestalt. of both as you level up. Um, and it's yeah. just such mm-hmm. a gestalt. Thank you, Sean. It's it's just you know there is something in that that I find so delightful. Like it, it makes my mm. my brain go buzz. <laughs>
0: Mm. Yeah the uh two thoughts the first is multiclassing when you go all the way back this is my when I was young moment multiclassing during AD&D was necessary because many times the fighter looked like every fighter the cleric looked like every cleric the wizard looked like every wizard and multiclassing was a way for you to really customize the character that you wanted as we've evolved through the additions, there are now many ways to do that sort of customization. there are feats there are backgrounds, there are subclasses there are options like Scott so graciously and beautifully made for Aurora where you can instead of having a lineage from the start you choose the traits. you can build a character that is very unique. Without having to multiclass, and multiclassing works mostly, as as James said. But that that machine isn't necessarily built. This five E machine is not necessarily built to to do that. One of the reasons that those ability score prerequisites are there is in case players don't know what they're doing and say, "Oh, I want to play." The wizard, oh, now I want to multi-class into fighter, but I have a 10 for both strength and dexterity, and therefore I don't have much. Now, if you know what you're doing, I'm sure that you can work your way around that and still be a reasonably powerful, if not very powerful character. But somebody who's new to the game might not. They might not recognize that, realize that. So that is there for, for a reason Not of limitation, but of help. Everything else I was going to say is gone. We just like stealing the words out of your mouth, Sean. Who
1: needs it? Must have been a lie, as my great-grandmother would say.
0: It was probably true. Well, I forget a lot, but we will not lie to you with this final question. Coming from Gethin, with Twitter heading downward and the TTRPG community spreading across various platforms, what do you believe is the best way for new writers and designers to be noticed? DM's Guild is fine, but creators who want to make money can't feasibly use it. Drive RPG has such a high turnover of products, it can be hard to be noticed. What advice do you all have for gaining attention, both for their products, but also for your skills for when companies, large and small, are looking for new freelancers?
2: Thinking back to how I got started in this industry, which was a combination of uh, writing for like the Kobold Press blog, which was one of those rare sort of like entry-level RPG writing positions. And generally just from like being caught on the headwind of 5e mania, you know, this is 2014, 2015, 5e has just come out. It's shockingly successful after all the doom and gloom throughout the entire D&D Next playtest. All of a sudden this game rocks. Uh, and even in the absence of an OGL, people are trying to make third-party content by kind of hacking the third edition OGL into suiting their needs and whether or not that was legal or if wizards just felt, eh, <laughs> let them go, uh, didn't matter. Everyone was doing it. Um, and just like you were saying earlier, Scott, about, uh, will this be, will, you know, 5.5, the the 5e refresh be as successful as 5e's runaway success is? Uh I, I think the very, very right next door question to that is will the 5e refresh be as exciting as 5e was? Will it get will it set people's minds on fire and create this big boom of new content, uh, from the third-party creators, from the online space, from all that. And uh Unless that same boom happens, I don't think that uh, individual self-publishing will be a viable option in the near future, uh, not unless you get very, very lucky. Um, which leads me to think that your, your best way of getting into the RPG industry now and in the near future is to uh, create a personal blog and no one reads blogs anymore. I'll say that but at least it will be a record of what you've made so that when you go knocking on the door of Cobalt Press or uh, Ghostfire Gaming or MCDM or hell, you know, Wizards of the Coast, if you're gutsy, uh, Paizo, Lonnie Cook Games, you know, whoever's out there in the medium to big space publishing RPGs right now, you'll have a work sample to hand to them. and, And so you can say, hey, I'm really passionate. I promise you I can hit my deadlines and look at not only my imaginative ideas, but also my ability to follow through on them. Uh, so with, with social media collapsing into a wasteland right now, I think what you really need to be is you really need to be self-motivated and like, knock on a lot of doors. And that sounds like some boomer-ass advice, but...
1: (laughs) I think the thing that was most boomer about that, James, was you saying social media is collapsing as though social media is Twitter. (laughs) Like... (laughs) I will say, I will say <laughs> social media is broader than that. And the whole thing has always been about creating networks. Mm-hmm. What was so useful about Twitter to um, individual creators is the same thing that is the big drawback, right? It is a public square where everyone goes to and everyone is talking there. And so you get all the crap at the same time as you get the good stuff, right? So there's a lot of eyes and what's what we're witnessing is a, is a big migration back towards um, what we call walled gardens mm-hmm. uh, in terms of digital media. So there's spaces where it's much smaller, more curated groups of people. Um, So, you know, individual Discord servers, for example. Um, And that is still social media. It is still valuable, but there are less eyes Mm. around. Um, But at the same time, people are enjoying that migration right now because they don't have all the random uh, losers on Twitter, right? So, so there's the benefits and the costs for, for every single thing, but it's also worth mentioning something like YouTube is social media. Mm. That's where I get my start because I make videos. It will become a a more difficult thing for people who are, um, coming from a writing background, right? Because you're, you're not necessarily able to put yourself out there as easily as you were with Twitter, Um, And again, I mean, also worth mentioning, it's very hard to kill a social platform. (laughs) I doubt Twitter will completely die. But we have seen before, MySpace became like a place for sharing music. You know what I mean? You never know what's going to happen. But- This thing that James was just talking about, keeping a blog, anything like that, it can be a blog, it can be a YouTube channel, it can be whatever, it can be your little network of social media platforms. The valuable thing about that is that you're creating a digital artifact and it is something that you create that record and you can share that record. I will say, try to make sure that you have a recognizable name or brand name across the different platforms. Don't do what I do. I do it wrong. Try to have the same name so that people can recognize you wherever you go. Um, but uh, I don't think I don't think it'll be hopeless. I think that there will always be new places to uh, to share things and new eyes to see the things that you're willing to share. Just keep going.
2: Based on that, and Dale, tell me tell me if I'm wrong because you you've got a big fun Discord server, and Discord exhausts me and makes me want to take a nap. Um, but I I feel in my heart that if we're going to walled garden communities, we're going to smaller social media pools, uh, we might be kind of entering a period where if you want to start making RPGs, thinking of it as a job, even like an aspirational job might be a mistake, that you might want to think of it as a small artist and as someone who wants to make cool stuff with other people. Right, and It's always kind of been that way, but it might be especially that way now.
1: Yes, I, I would definitely agree with that. The spirit of sort of collaboration is going to be really important, reaching out to other people and just making those connections um, rather than relying on, you know, the masses. I should have mentioned Reddit as well. Reddit is always a great place to share your work.
3: Yeah, I think I think um I can I can add some actual boomer ass advice for <laughs> that. Um, I think one, one, one of the interesting things talk, talking about how social media is changing, talking about, you know, Twitter is not as good as it used to be. Even even people, even before the muskification of Twitter. People <laughs> on Twitter talked about how the algorithm changed a few years ago, right? Uh, Twitter used to be a good place to get noticed and then that stopped being the case. People on YouTube talk about you know, changes to the algorithm where suddenly you're not getting the same number of people looking at your stuff or seeing things and no one really knows what's in the algorithm, so it's, it's, it's just this weird shell game, right? <laughs> but if you imagine a world without social media or without broad social media where we replace that with these walled gardens, One of the interesting things to think about is that when Sean and I were your age, Dale and uh, James, there was nothing but walled gardens, right? Mm -hmm. Yet people still managed to create. People still managed to find an audience, right? Um, um, I'm trying to think of an example, and the one that pops to my head for whatever reason is Metallica. Metallica first became known by passing out copies of a cassette tape that they recorded, a demo, right? And they started out in their local area, San Francisco, just basically passing it out at gigs and encouraging people to make copies of it and give it to their friends, right? So these fourth and fifth generation cassette copies of this little EP got f- sent far and wide, right? At the same time, you know, like, like, like something like that. If you're thinking about music, if you're thinking I want to do so- like I'm, I'm a good musician and I want to I do that creatively, you start off by gigging in small places, Right. Once you get established to that, you maybe look to see if there's an opportunity. Maybe that'll get you into a small festival. Right. Maybe the small festival gets you an opportunity to play a larger festival. If you're a writer, you're thinking about I want to write novels someday. Right. And that's assuming that you're not looking strictly at self-publishing, but you want to, you know, sort of be a part of the industry in some way. Writers have always started out by writing short fiction and trying to sell short fiction into the markets to pay for short fiction. Once you do that enough times, you can maybe put your short fiction together into an anthology. Maybe being noticed in an anthology gets you an invitation to a small writers festival. Then maybe the invitation to the small writers festival gets you an invitation to a larger writers festival. Right? And in the days before social media, that's what everybody did. And, you know, certainly, you know, like, like somebody Metallica X number of years ago, passing around the cassette tape and somebody on a really good, friendly, you know, supportive discord server saying, Hey, here's something I've created. I'd love people to play it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a lot of difference between those two things. And I think they can, that, that can certainly be as much of a stepping stone Mm -hmm. now as it used mm.
2: to. Yeah.
1: I was just talking to Colville about um about fanzines, you know, in the in the pre-social media days this this practice of like oh. just everyone sending in your address to this thing and going, all right, well, I'm going to collect a bunch of, I don't know, fan fiction or fan art or, um, you know, stuff about D&D, right? Like send it all into the one place. It all gets collated into one thing. And then you send out copies to everyone. Like that was a thing that I remember getting into an argument with my digital media lecturer mid- <laughs> mid-lecture, mid because he said that this kind of fan behavior didn't exist pre-social media. And I said, how dare you? And pointed him to the Blake seven fanzines. <laughs> Life finds a way.
3: None of us are trying to downplay how, how difficult it is to get your work out there and to get your work seen. Like one of the things that astounds me right now in within the RPG space specifically is the number of amazing artists who are doing stuff for RPGs and doing art that's RPG adjacent. And so many of the artists who I follow on Twitter still, you know, they're 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 in a state of existential despair right now. Because of, you know, the small size of the industry to begin with, the effect of AI art and what that could potentially have on their ability to continue to create. So like none of us are saying, hey, it's easy. Just, you know, make a cassette tape of your RPG art and you know, pass it out at concerts or something. We, we know that it's really difficult uh, and it's always been difficult and it will continue to be challenging. But the fact that social media is changing, I don't think marks the death knell for getting your work noticed. It just means your work is going to be noticed in a different way. In different venues, yeah,
2: yeah, and and you know to, to combat any sellout allegations that uh, <laughs> that uh, this talk may have laid upon me, I just want to say the most important thing you can do here is to make a cool, fun, weird indie RPG. D and D exists, and if there's a you know if there's a way to get into that sphere, uh, and, and you want that, you should take it. But if that road doesn't exist, it's not worth your time to try and, you know, hack it open. Uh, not if you're going to be fighting. Well, it's always an upstream fight, but not if you're going to have to try and, like, climb a waterfall for it. Uh, it would be so much more easier and so much more, I, I think, artistically fulfilling to, uh, to fight to work a day job and still make cool art rather than try and make the the terrible wages that you know a full-time rpg you know, 99% of full-time rpg people yeah. make
0: one of the things i do with my creative or my game design class is i have them write a letter telling me things about them in terms of their gameplay their game design have you created stuff and i always get a subsection who are are like i've written 27 classes and 43 heritages and Oh, uh, I write all my own adventures, and I believe that they are going to be good. I believe that. But then I, one of the first assignments I do is, like, make me a clone of this this one-page RPG. Make me a clone. What's the one uh, Among the Stars, Alone Among the Stars? Make me a clone of Alone Among the Stars. And I'm more interested in someone who can do that really well. Follow those directions and and do something new and different and exciting than somebody who has done 47 subclasses because those 47 Mm -hmm. subclasses might be great, but I want you to be able to grow because I might need you to do something else as a producer, as as a lead designer. I might need you to be able to do something else that isn't that. So no matter what you do, no matter what social media you go to, no matter what, You will get a chance, likely. You will get a chance. You may get several chances along the way. Know what you're doing. Be the best designer you can be. So when that chance comes along, you're able to capitalize on it. Because sometimes that chance might come along too soon. And you might get that big shot and you might not be up for that yet. So take the time to learn what you are doing before you try to go out and take over the world. The world will be there. Hmm. Some people will fail a thousand times, a thousand and first time they'll hit it. Uh, but know what you're doing. Learn, learn the games with that. I want to thank you. Everyone out there listening for listening to the number one podcast in all the universe that is recording right now. Uh, and I want to thank James Dale And Scott, Scott, tell people uh, what you have been working on so that you can uh, get them out there with your new game. I've been working on
3: a game uh, for a while now, uh, which I'm going to be putting into playtesting later this year called Core 20. It's a D20 based game. It's effectively Dungeons and Dragons with no classes and no levels, which is a game that I've been waiting for years for someone else to write. And I just sort of thought, you know, hey, this will be, you know, this, it's an obvious thing to make D&D, but to strip it down a different way. And I got tired of waiting. So I decided, I guess I got to do this crap myself. So uh, that's where it's at. Uh, you can go to core20rpg.com, which I think will take you to a design and development blog. There's some articles and some updates, which are very sporadic right now, because I'm too busy working for other people. Uh, but I should be able to get back on track with that pretty
0: quick. Hopefully. Awesome. Uh, Thank you, James. Thank you, Dale. Thank you, Scott. And thank you to all our listeners out there. Ben will be back next week to to tame this rodeo of a show. But we will see you (laughs) next time.